let's pray, please. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for breathing forth the words of eternal life and Holy Scripture. Help us understand these things, to rejoice in them, as this is one of the most glorious and encouraging and wonderful passages of your holy word, the climax of all history in Jesus' death and his burial. So bless us now as we study it together, and we pray that we would receive his truth with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 56. Luke 23, verses 44 through 56. Luke 23, verses 44 through 56. This is God's word. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. May God bless the reading of his holy word. We come now to the climax of all history, the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. This event is the only reason that there is a human history after Adam's rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve ought to have fallen dead at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they didn't because God had a plan to redeem a multitude of people so vast that no man can count them. Death is God's enemy because it is his people's enemy. And I want to encourage all of you who know the grace of repentance unto life and who know the grace of saving faith in Christ alone, I want to encourage you today to rest, rest in what you see Jesus doing here. One of the most encouraging and glorious facts regarding the work of Christ is that it all happened and it was completed and finished long before we ever got here. So there's no way that any of us could mess it up. Its success does not depend in any way upon us. And that's good news. We were not there to contribute anything to it. We were not there to detract from it. You see, if any part of our getting into heaven depended upon us, we would, without question, in some way, mess it up. And it comforts the hearts of sin-sick souls like ours 
to watch him in action here. Just watch him do what, he's, what he did. The death penalty of our sins is paid for at our Lord's cross. The curse of our disobedience falls entirely on him. And I want to say there's nothing more insulting to God than the notion that something done in us or, or done by us could contribute anything to the perfection of what our Lord accomplished here. If you follow what, what our church does, what I do on YouTube, you know we just finished the book of Galatians. And the Apostle Paul had no use for any of that. Anyone that tried to add anything at all, anything at all to what Jesus did, um, they, they came under his great displeasure, we shall say. This is why the word of God is so emphatic on this point. Christ's whole life of perfect righteousness is legally credited to our account. And his cross, his death, is received by God the judge as the satisfaction for all of our sins, for our past sins, our present sins, for everything that we ever will do wrong in the future. Nailed to the cross, it's gone forever. He gets all the glory for it. He gets all the glory for it. Jesus does all the saving. Jesus alone supplies the righteousness that we don't have, desperately need, and could never earn. Jesus' death supplies the forgiveness for all of our sins since the wrath of God against them is now satisfied and gone. It's gone. And here's the glorious result of his work. You know, Peter saw this so well. Peter, Peter a man who sinned, who, who blew it so severely and so regularly. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This morning we look at Luke's record of the death and then the burial of Jesus. It's a sad thing to consider. It's a sad thing to look at. But it all took place exactly as God planned for it to take place. But still, think about it. God sends his own son into the world. God the son adds a true body and a reasonable soul to himself in the incarnation. He does nothing but good to everyone he ever comes in contact with. He nearly single-handedly rid this entire part of the world of disease. He changes the hearts of demon-possessed people and makes them saved and whole. He brings new life and repentance to prostitutes, to thieves, liars, hypocrites, and many others. Jesus interrupted funerals while people were taking their dead to go bury them and raises them back to life while they're still sitting in their coffin. He preaches the truth in such a way that no one who's ever walked this earth has matched it in how profound and glorious it is. He breaks down walls of separation between Jews and Gentiles by talking to and saving a promiscuous Samaritan woman in Samaria. And he shows the world the very heart of the one and true living God. And that heart goes out to all the world and searches for prodigals and religious hypocrites both. And God calls them both, repent and come to the supper. Come to the wedding feast. Repent and believe. What is God like? Well, as Luke recorded for us back in chapter 15, Jesus showed us. He's like a father with a wayward son watching the road to see if there's any sign of repentance. We know the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. These God will never despise. He will never refuse. 
We so often think we're too evil, we're too stubbornly evil, too obstinately evil for God to love us. But such people are the Lord's specialty. (laughs) He specializes in them. And we just saw that last week with the man that died on the cross and was saved right next to Jesus. Maybe you've been down lately, struggling with sin lately, considering giving up on the fight with sin, the fight with sadness, the fight with darkness. Here's a glorious truth for us all to consider. God's love for us is not merely many times stronger than our own battles with sin. It's infinitely stronger. It's infinitely more persistent. God's light is greater than the darkest days we will ever know. Consider Job. Did God's love for Job ever change? Did his love for Job ever waver? Job seemed to think that it did. If you read his comments, but we know it didn't. We know God loved Job just as much at the beginning of his trials as he did in the days of prosperity towards the end of his life. And Job wondered, why, why God, why are you setting me up as target practice to shoot arrows at? Why are you doing that to me? He says that twice in Job 7.20 and Job 16.12. But we know Job hadn't done anything wrong. He wasn't being chastened for anything. His friends thought he did, but he didn't. And we know from God's word, he didn't. He was a blameless, godly man. All of us have wondered at times, God, have you stopped loving me? God, I've tried to order my life according to your word. I've tried to honor you with my actions, my priorities, with my life. Why are you striking me? In our passage here, we have something that goes far beyond the ups and downs of daily life. We have the demonstration of the love of God. You know, we're never told in scripture that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, we never suffered. While we were yet sinners, nothing that we ever tried failed. While we were yet sinners, everything that we desired that was good and pleasing to God, he granted to us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the demonstration. That's the unchanging anchor that never goes away. I want to encourage you. Rest in that glorious truth. Think of the dying thief that died there next to Jesus. (laughs) How are things going in his life at that point? How was his walk with Christ five minutes after he got saved? But he could know, even nailed to the cross, that his creator loved him. Why? The man next to him was his savior. Jesus was dying for that man's sins, thus demonstrating the love of God for him, even while he was nailed to a cross. The reason Jesus and his righteousness and his cross work, they're called in scripture, the anchor of our souls. They're called the anchor of our souls in the word of God is that his perfect work remains what it is, regardless of what's going on with me or you. Jesus's perfect salvation never changes. It's always sufficient. It's always there. For those who repent and trust only in him, you stand in the loving heart of God for eternity. And you know, long after all of us are gone and forgotten, buried somewhere, there'll be people struggling, going through hard things, and they'll look at the same passages, and they'll be an anchor for their soul too. He's always sufficient. He's always there. His work never changes. Bear this in mind as we walk through this sobering text. We see two clear divisions. Jesus dies, verse 44 to 49, and then he's buried, verse 50 to 56. The most extraordinary life ever lived and the only perfectly obedient, righteous life ever lived in this world is brutally extinguished in the cruelest way imaginable. 
And then there's silence. He's dead. And his dead body is laid in the tomb. What a monument to human sinfulness that is. So let's walk through it together. Look at verse 44 now. Verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, stop there. In August of 2017, remember what happened in August of 2017? There was a total solar eclipse, total eclipse of the sun. And we lived here, you know, in Kingsport, and the surrounding areas were, were close, but they weren't quite in the totality zone. And I really wanted to go to a totality zone. And I wanted my kids to see what a total solar eclipse was like, and I wanted to see what it was like too, because I'd never seen one. So I pulled up a Google map, and I picked up the little Google dude and just dropped him in the middle of the, of the totality swath and then pushed go on my phone, like, that's where we're going. And we had one pair of dark glasses, and I made one of those cardboard boxes with the, the little hole in the back of it so you could see. It actually worked remarkably well. And I had no idea where we were going. We were just going to go wherever that little dude fell. And as it turned out, he, I dropped him in the parking lot of a little church in Gatlinburg. We had the whole parking lot to ourselves. It was really cool. But you know what? It seemed like it took almost forever for the sun to finally be totally eclipsed. You know, in God's providential design, it's not an accident. It's not an accident. The sun, which is large enough to contain 1.3 million Earths, and the moon, which is roughly one-fourth the size of the Earth, because the distance the moon is from us, about 238,000 miles, and the sun, which is 93 million miles from us, roughly 391 times farther than the moon, when the moon passes directly between the earth and the sun, it almost perfectly fits over the sun. And watching that happen uh, the way that it did was, was almost divine to watch. It was not an accident. And when the sun was completely blocked, you know, it only lasted for like, Two minutes. But it was very strange. Very strange. The stars came out. And the birds and the trees, they all jumped out of the trees and they all went crazy. Flying in circles and crying out. And there were little wavy lines all over the asphalt in that parking lot. And a cool breeze suddenly brushed over us. It was really surreal. But it only lasted about two minutes. Now in this passage here, a lot has been written. A lot of ink has been spilled about this darkness that's mentioned here in verse 44. But I want to tell you, it was not a solar eclipse. It was not a solar eclipse. It was a miracle. It was a miracle that required no secondary means, and it lasted for three hours. Three hours. One thing about this miraculous long period of darkness over the land, which is not not over the whole earth, but just over this area of the world, that has frustrated many people, many commentators are frustrated by the fact that we're not told exactly why this happened. The text doesn't tell us why. It just says, and darkness was over the face of the land for three hours. But I want to ask the question, did it mean anything? Did it mean anything? And I would say in response to that, oh yes, it did. It meant a lot. Darkness is a symbol in scripture of judgment. Light is a symbol of life and salvation. Isaiah 5, verse 30. And that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow. And the light is darkened by the clouds. There's a reason people don't get seasonal affective disorder in desert climates where the sun is always shining, right? It only happens here. I've noticed the sun disappears for almost a week at a time down here. 
It doesn't do that in Cincinnati. And then it really, it really starts to get me down a little bit. Isaiah 60, verse 2. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And one more from the prophets. Amos 5, 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Light is a glorious creation. It's a precious gift from God to the world, as is the ability to see it. In fact, in Genesis 1-3, in the third verse of the Bible, the first thing that God calls into being in the void and the darkness is light. Let there be light, it says in Genesis 1-3. 1 John 1-5 describes God as light. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Even sin is associated with darkness and righteousness with light, metaphorically speaking. Ephesians 5.11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, it says, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. John 8, verse 12, one of the great I am sayings. What does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, I've looked back on old, old journals that I've written, and you see statements I wrote myself. These have been dark days of light. These are dark days of light. I feel like I'm in darkness. We look back at certain periods of time in our lives, and we think of days of light, and we think of, of dark times, too. We all know what this means. You know, I looked up the word light in the online Encyclopedia Britannica. It's one of the longest encyclopedic articles I've ever seen. What is clear from that article is that nobody knows what light is. Nobody knows what it is. What is its ontology? What is light in and of itself? You know, sometimes it acts like a wave. Sometimes it acts like a particle. And that article goes through the entire history of theories of light, of what it actually is from ancient Greece all the way through to modern science and theories and everything else. And a lot of progress has been made on what light does and how it works, but a definition of what it is has yet to be fully formulated. We know it's there. We know when it goes out, but we don't really know what it is. Darkness is associated with danger. We're told in scripture, if the blind lead the blind, said Jesus, both will fall into a pit. The word of God is said to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. When Jesus' hour comes to be arrested, to be turned over to his enemies, Jesus described it in the last chapter. Remember Luke twenty-two fifty-three. 53? He said to his enemies, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The power of darkness. The key to understanding why this darkness came is that as one commentator wrote, quote, hell came to Calvary that day. And the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. Darkness is the symbol, the divine symbol of judgment. Darkness overtook our Lord. He bore that infinite weight of the wrath of God in these moments. And you know, light has always been a symbol that Christians have used for Advent, for the coming of Jesus into the world. It's not an accident that people put what all over their houses. They don't even know why they do it to this day. What do they put all over their houses? Light. So it lights up in the, in the dark. You know, in the church I grew up in, they had a Christmas Eve service. It was a candlelight service. And 
that I was always, always great until a, a child accidentally put their candle too close to someone's hairspray hair. So that was really, really lit up the uh, sanctuary. But we didn't do that after that. But there, sorry, there are three simultaneous events that are recorded here for us. Three, three simultaneous events that are recorded by Luke, but there's actually more that are recorded in the other gospels. We have Jesus's death, and then these all happen simultaneously. His death, three hours of darkness, the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, we're told. And there's also another event that Luke doesn't record that the other gospels do. There's a great earthquake. So let's read these together. Look at verse 45 and 46. Because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So the sun goes out. You know, the, the Greek term there means failed. The sun failed for three hours. And the veil in the temple to the Holy of Holies is torn in half from top to bottom, miraculously, showing it wasn't a person that did this, God did it. God tore the veil to the Holy of Holies in half. And it happened at three o'clock. You know what would have been happening there in the temple at three? The priests would have been very busy. They would have been eyewitnesses of this. They would have seen it. The veil in the temple tears in two from top to bottom. What a sight that must have been. How ominous would that have been? Why did that happen? We're told in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 19, this hope of, uh, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. The tearing of the veil to the Holy of Holies is symbolic that Christ has entered not into an earthly temple, but into heaven itself. He's gone into the true tabernacle, into the very presence of God himself. And the way is now free to all that believe in him. Full and free, confident access to God. Hebrews 9.3 And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Hebrews 10.20 By a new and living way, which he consecrated, consecrated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. So the veil is like the flesh of Christ that's torn and killed. And now there's no hindrance between us and God anymore. None. Through Jesus' death, satisfying divine justice once for all by his all-sufficient blood being spilled and his laying down his life for us, full and free, bold and confident access to God the Father is achieved. And the way into not a little room in a physical building in Jerusalem, but into the very holy presence of God himself directly has been achieved by the death of Jesus. The moment Jesus died... Every sacrifice that would ever be offered in that temple again would be invalid, would be a blasphemy against him. All the bloodshed and death brought to the tens and thousands of lambs and bulls and goats and everything else from Passover, from the beginning, way back in Exodus, all the way through Israel's history, they would be fulfilled by the true lamb of God, by Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. We know from the other gospels, as I said, there was also a great earthquake. We know from the text that it was so powerful that it split large rocks nearby. And we also know from Matthew that graves were opened and the bodies of many saints rose from the dead and wandered around the city of Jerusalem. Listen to Matthew 27, 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
All these things take place at the moment of Jesus' death. An avalanche of miracles. And everybody there saw them. Everyone present saw it. Three hours of darkness. You couldn't miss that. An earthquake. Resurrections would happen when Christ rose from the dead. Jesus' remarkable final words. It says he said them in a loud voice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That would have gotten everyone's attention. And then he expires. He dies. It's so glorious to consider this. While what Jesus experienced on the cross, it was, it was the equivalent of infinite hell fire that all of his people deserved. Jesus' soul goes into paradise along with that repentant man on the cross who would join him there soon. Jesus did not enter a place of torment after his death. He bore it all while he was dying on the cross. And that's why he said it's now finished. He didn't need to go to hell or anything like that to finish it. It was finished with his death. That day, Jesus went to paradise. When he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he went into paradise. And it's like he wrapped his arms around that man next to him on the cross and took him with him. You're coming with me. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And don't worry about it, Mr. Thief on the cross. I'll do all the saving. I'm going to take you with me. He left this world of pain and agony and immediately enjoyed perfect, unbroken fellowship with his father, with all of God's people who were already there. If we count the first saying there as authentic, or Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. There's seven things that Jesus said while he was on the cross before he died. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then he said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And then he said to Mary, his mother, woman, behold your son with John right there. And behold your mother. And then he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, I thirst in fulfillment of prophecy from Psalm 22. And then he says, it is finished. And in the very last words, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Luke 23, 46 here is the very last thing that Jesus said in the land of the, of the living. His death was totally voluntary on his part. He was not subject to when his body at last finally gave out. Jesus commended his own spirit into the hands of his father and then died. And he said that's what he was going to do throughout his ministry. In John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In John, he said, I have power to lay down my life and to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. In John 10, 15, as the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. It was Jesus who laid his life down. Nobody took it from him. It was the greatest sacrifice he could make. It is the manifestation of the greatest of all loves to lay down your life for your friends. Isn't that such an encouraging thought for God's people? Jesus died on our behalf and he bore the wrath and the curse of our sins because we're his friends and he loves us. We're his friends and he loves us. The physical effects of death, they would have taken hold of him exactly like it will take hold of us one day. It says that he breathed his last his final breath, just like ours, will be one day. Jesus was then hanging there, lifeless, dead, still nailed to the cross. What is important for us to notice is the calm restfulness with which he died. The work is finally accomplished. It's finished. It's done. What Jesus came to do, he did perfectly. He's left nothing in our hands. We simply receive and rest upon him. He fulfilled his purpose, which was to give his life a ransom for many. It was like... The entire created cosmos reacted to his death. Everything in creation reacted to it when he died. The sun failed. 
The earth shakes. Death is being crushed and destroyed by our Lord. So infinitely powerful was his death that many people start coming out of their graves in Jerusalem when he rises from the dead. To everyone present, to all the people watching this, the supernatural implications of what was happening, they were manifest to all of them. Everyone could see it. The scene was stunning. It was moving, powerful, earthquake, darkness, rocks being split. Something, something terrible and wonderful had just happened. But one man in particular, he was not merely moved by it. He was saved. You see verse 47? Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. So here you have a Roman, pagan Roman. He took all this in. The display supernaturally caused natural phenomenon. It was astounding in itself. But by his own words, in which he declares Jesus to have been innocent, he was particularly taken in by Christ. I'm sure the miracles were astounding, but it was Jesus that had moved him. It was Jesus' conduct throughout his crucifixion that had stunned this man's heart. The centurion had no doubt seen many people crucified. And we can have little doubt that most people that died by crucifixion would have died cursing and calling down vengeance upon those that were torturing them. But this man saw something very different from that. He saw a man being crucified who was concerned for his torturers. He saw a man being crucified who gave comfort and assurance to the man who was repentant upon the other cross. How many times had this centurion ever heard a crucifixion victim confess that what he was getting was a just punishment for the life he had lived? I would venture to say that was the first time he'd ever heard a man on a cross saying, this is righteous. We're getting what we deserve. You've probably never seen that before. Yet that's exactly what just happened. Jesus was mocked. He was reviled. This centurion may have been one of the ones doing that. Pretending to bow down to him, pretending to worship him. Hail majesty, king of the Jews. Here's your robe. Here's your scepter. Here's your crown of thorns. High and mighty majesty. He may have been one of the ones doing that. Jesus is being mocked and reviled, cursed at, spit upon, beaten, nailed to a cross, lied about. And Peter describes it this way, 1 Peter 2, 23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And if you're attacked, if you're mocked, if you're reviled, cursed at, spit on, don't revile in return. You commit yourself to him who judges righteously. God will deal with your enemies. The centurion is saved. Everyone else apparently wasn't saved, but they were, they were moved by it. And you need to make a distinction, please, in your thinking. There's a real big difference between being moved by something and being saved. Those are not the same thing. Look at verse 48 and 49. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Isn't that strange? It's like they they all were filled with guilt. It's like they, they screamed and shouted together, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. But now they, they look at what they did and they, they see the darkness and they, they see the earthquake and they see what Jesus said and his close communion with God. You couldn't miss it if you were there. They see the heavenly signs and the wonders and now all they can think is, I guess, 
Look at what we did. Look what we've done. And they pound on their chests. You know, all of us have done that too at some point in our life, haven't we? We've all looked at something we've done and dropped our head or beat our chests or our fists on ourselves with shame. You know, one commentator said this, they came to see a show, they left with feelings of woe. What have we done? Think about this for a moment. 40 days or so later, when Peter preaches to the crowd at Pentecost in the same city there, 3,000 people get saved. 3,000 of them are saved. And Peter preached this to this group, Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. He blamed them. You all took him and killed him. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, it says. Cut to the heart. It's a very unique verb. It's only used one time in the New Testament. Katanusamai. It means to be stabbed. Pierced. This group was pierced by this. Pierced to the heart. They were broken with shame over what they did. They were, they were guilt-ridden and ashamed of it. And they're distressed by the wickedness that they were guilty of. And they had, they had rejected Jesus and they had a hand in murdering him. They killed the Prince of Life. And it seems the Holy Spirit, right here in verse 48 and 49, it's like he's preparing them for this. He's already starting to convict, to, to convict them of their sins. Even there at the cross, as they watch the signs they start realizing something's very wrong with what we just did and they're pounding on their chests. And I would ask the question, how gracious is God here? Some of the people who shouted out, crucify him, were gonna be saved a few weeks later? Yeah. God glorifies that grace and the salvation of every one of his elect people. You know, the section of our confession, we actually read through it in, in the new members class this morning. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and to the praise of his glorious grace. God appointed us not to wrath, but to obtain salvation. As Paul said in Ephesians 1, verse 6, he does this to the praise of the glory of his grace. God is passionate for his own glory. He alone has the right to be. If we're passionate to glorify ourselves, that's sin. What do we have that we did not receive from God? But God, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, he chooses us in Christ to glorify his grace. Every child of God is a source of joy, a source of glory to the Lord Jesus. He saves us to glorify his grace. We're all monuments of grace. If we really do know him, we are the trophies of the love and mercy of God in Christ. God delights in mercy. He delights in faithfulness. He rejoices over the fruits of of Christ's work when he sees us. Think of Jesus' reaction to Peter when Peter was at his very worst. 
When Peter face-planted and denied him three times, after he promised him he never would, did Jesus love him any less in those moments? Not at all. When David sinned, when David committed murder and adultery, did God love him less when he did that? Not at all. It's that love that never changes. It's the love of Christ that is a fixed point, an anchor, an immovable rock and foundation that we're attached to by the divinely given hand of faith. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5, that it's God's power that keeps us through the instrument of faith. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We trust only in him for our salvation. And that is how God's power keeps us. That faith continues throughout the trials that we endure. And Peter understood that too. Peter went through real big trials and suffered greatly in his life. He wrote in 1 Peter 1, after the passage I just quoted to you, he said, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's God's prom- promise to you. His promise is to finish what he started. The revelation of Jesus Christ is his second coming, when all this finally comes to an end forever. The very people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Many of them would soon be cut to the heart and saved. And here in verse 48, they're beating their breasts already. They're beating their chests. They see the supernatural signs and they're starting to come to see how wrong it was. In closing, let's look at his burial. Verse 50 to 56. Just look at verse 50 through 52 first. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, now think about how encouraging this is. Jesus had a number of disciples that we know very little about. But this man is mentioned in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record that it was Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council. He did not go along with their wicked plan. He didn't go along with his fellow Sanhedrin members. He stood almost alone with one other guy, Nicodemus. Remember him? But what courage this took. A member of the council of the Sanhedrin goes to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Pretty gutsy move. Sanhedrin had already decided, you confess this man to be the Christ. You say anything nice about Jesus, we'll kick you out of the synagogue. But he goes anyway. You know, most crucifixion victims were not buried. Almost all of them were thrown into local garbage dumps and then they would have been consumed by animals. But this too is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' burial in a rich man's grave was also prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 verse 9 his grave was assigned with, with wicked men. His, his death was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Although Jesus was legally held responsible for all of our sins before God, for all of our law-breaking in honor of his perfect righteousness and his innocence, the fact that he had done no violence and no deceit had ever come out of his mouth, he was given a rich man's burial. He was given an honorable burial. The next verses describe it. You see verse 53 to 56. This is talking about Joseph of Arimathea. And he took it down. He took Jesus' body down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. 
Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Joseph of Arimathea was a lily among thorns. He really was. And were it not for this bit of divine revelation, if if the scriptures did not tell us that Joseph of Arimathea did this, I would have thought there was not a saved man anywhere to be found in the leadership of Israel. But the fact is, there are often more believers than we realize. And they often live in places we wouldn't expect them to live. You know, if we, if we tend to go rather dark in our thoughts at times, let this be a reminder that the Lord still has many people who belong to him, even in this dark country that we live in. There's a lot of Christian people in this country. We need not doubt that. Remember Elijah? Elijah, after his victorious showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you would think he'd be at a spiritual high when that happened, right? And yet shortly after that, he prays, God, would you please just kill me? Just kill me. I don't want to live anymore. I'm the only believer left in the whole country. And what does God say to him? First Kings 19, 18. No, you're not. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you're not alone. I've got 7,000 people in this country. I have reserved them for myself. Now, who would have thought it wouldn't be Peter, it wouldn't be John or Thomas or Andrew. Not one of them approached Pilate to take Jesus' dead body, but a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, did. That council that had engaged in a kangaroo court illegally to condemn him, that plotted to crucify him, to engage in that great wickedness against him, a member of that council does this. A member of the council that brought about this atrocity of his death, he's going to do it. Who would have thought? Also, it was members of the wicked council and the women who helped and provided for Jesus out of their own substance. We know what we learn about them in the Gospels. They would see to his burial. They would be preparing spices and perfumes to come back on the third day to anoint his body. Remember, what are they the first ones to see? He's alive. Those women were the first ones to see him. Remember, one of them thinks that Jesus is the gardener. It just breathes real history. That's the way we would be. I wouldn't believe it either. I wouldn't believe my own eyes. Where are the 12 now? Where'd they go? Here you have one of these wicked Israelite religious leaders and women. They're the only ones left that seem to care about him. Where are his disciples? Well, Judas is dead. The rest of them have scattered except John. John's there with Mary, but the rest are gone. They're around, but you know what? They're at a spiritual low point. They're at a low point in their lives. What we need to see here, dear congregation, is that God's love for all of them, no matter what they were doing, his love for that member of the council, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who seems to have come around himself, the women, the closest 11 that are still alive, his love for them was always the same. It never wavered. It never changed. never grew, never diminished. Jesus did what he came to do to save his people from their sins. Our sin, our wavering, our dark moments, the bad weeks that we have where we've sinned so much, we wonder, how could God possibly forgive me again? How could he possibly still accept me? 
our failures. They're no match for his love. No match. Jesus destroyed the curse by dying in the place of his people. And having satisfied perfectly the justice of God, he accepts and receives us, his people, into his favor forever. Jesus achieved that righteous requirement of the law by entering into that law, entering into that broken covenant of works and keeping it all for us on our behalf. And now he's dead. And he's going to be wrapped up and laid in that tomb. And the tomb's going to be sealed with a stone and a Roman seal is going to be put upon it. But in three days, Jesus is going to crush and abolish death itself by rising from the dead. Salvation is Christ. We simply rest upon him and his finished work and nothing else. And it's always the same to us, whether we're doing well or we're doing bad. Whether we're walking on clouds and full of joy or we're in a hole of depression. God always supplies all the love that never wavers. All the satisfaction to justice, Jesus did it all. All the righteousness, he clothes us with it like a garment. We're justified, we're adopted, we're given eternal life as a free gift. And what was the cost? We just read it. He died and he was buried. And he continued under the power of death for a time. And thus, this brings us to the end of Jesus' estate of humiliation. And next week, next Sunday, begins his estate of exaltation. His estate of exaltation. When he rises from the dead, where he is now even at the right hand of God. And blessed be his holy name. Jesus is alive now, today. And one day soon, all of our tears will be wiped away. All the hard providences and struggles that we endured here, they will seem to be a distant memory if we even remember them at all. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for loving us, for sending Jesus to die for us. And we bless your holy name that what he did is a perfect work. He has obtained eternal redemption to all those that were given to him. And we thank you that he's always sufficient to meet our every need. And we thank you that his work is what it is, regardless of how we're doing, how weak or strong our faith is, for even a weak and small faith still embraces a strong and perfect savior. May we receive and rest upon him alone always for our entire salvation. And may he lift our chins if we're experiencing hard providences. And we pray also that you would always keep us humble and reliant upon him for everything. We ask in his name. Amen.